0: And this is a message that I teach two weeks in a row because of the volume of people that come in and go. Some people can be here this week, maybe not the next. We always try to make sure that this is an important teaching and we want to help as many people in our church hear it because it really does signify some very important rhythms, goals, and expectations we have as a church body in the upcoming year. So this is an annual teaching which serves as a bit of a compass that helps us to think about where we are going as a church family in 2019. And in light of that truth today, we're going to revisit some verses in Luke 15, and we're going to revisit them because they are incredibly important verses. They come from the words of Jesus, they are parables or stories meant to take spiritual realities and put them in an earthly world. In other words, parables are really God's way of opening the curtains of heaven and giving us a very clear and pointed example or understanding of how he wants his kingdom in heaven to look on earth. Luke 15 is the main reason we started this church. Because in it we understand that God deeply loves people, pursues them, and desires all men and women in this world to become disciples. And that word disciple or discipleship is a very important word in our church. Because we want to be a body that takes very seriously the greatest command Jesus has given us to be disciples and make disciples. To follow him with our minds, to experience him in our hearts, and to live out our faith with our hands. That understanding, being disciples and making disciples, is imperative for us to continue to see health in our church and for us to be effective for people and Jesus' kingdom. By effectiveness, that's a word that is used a lot today, I sort of want to give you a, a, a general understanding of what we mean by effective. I mean asking ourselves if our church family is a place that is defined by compassion. A place where God desires to see those who are far from him come to Jesus and a place that is defined by meaningful community a place where those who are already in Jesus can grow in Jesus, take next steps with Jesus. Those are the two great commands of the church, to love God with our heart, soul, and mind, to find him, and then to help others know and experience the same grace that we have experienced in Christ. Very important. And so I always like to say when we have a teaching like this, that this church, no doubt, belongs to Jesus. The church, lowercase c and capital c, past, present, and future, belongs to Jesus. It is his body, ultimately it belongs to God. But what's interesting about the church is that while we are on this earth, God gives us this wonderful opportunity and privilege to steward his body. In other words, we have a great responsibility in, in what we do and what we say, how we participate in the work of God through the local church, how we reveal the grace and the truth of Jesus in our everyday lives. and a room like this, and the rooms adjacent to the rooms like this that we have other things going on in and in our natural spheres of influence when we leave this place. And so in the truest sense, just like a family, every single one of us has a major role to play in order to keep the family healthy and stable. And the major role we read about today comes from Luke 15. It served as our compass in 2018 and will continue to serve as our compass in 2019. It is the main truth that I want to share with you this morning. We'll talk about it in various ways, but there's only one main idea that I really want us to grab onto today. Think about, apply, pray over this week, and then return this next week to discuss it again to see if there are places where we might actually take next steps with Jesus. Here's what I want to share with you this morning. God's compassionate pursuit of us, this is what we learned from Luke 15, his passionate, compassionate pursuit of us should compel us to passionately pursue those who are far from God. This is the main point of what Jesus tells us in Luke 15. And Luke 15 is perhaps best known for the story of the prodigal son who was lost and then found by his father. That's the back end of that teaching. It's the, it's the parable of the three stories that Jesus gives the most time to because it is the one that is likely most applicable to our hearts. It's the story of somebody who, essentially it's the story of righteousness and self-righteousness and how in their own ways, each one of these sons needed God. They were both looking to other things with the hope that they would satisfy God, one's personal righteousness, their self-righteousness, the other, a really wild form of living, sort of self-centered glorification. Each one of them needs God, the Father, in a very different way. But nonetheless, each of them needs God, the Father. And so what's interesting about this passage is we often skip these two parables that precede it, but they are foundational to what's actually happening here. That story of the son who came home is all the more powerful when you see why Jesus told it. He is really addressing a major problem in the first century world In Luke 15, 1-2 we read that tax collectors and sinners we've talked about them here before in this room these are without doubt the lowest dredges of society in the first century world the term sinner in that passage is a derogatory term that talks about somebody who is very far from God tax collectors if you know your ancient history they were considered traitors by their own people these were essentially people usually from uh, the Jewish culture who collected taxes for the Roman Empire and so what happened is is you had a person who had no home they were not seen as fully Roman and they were seen as traitors by their Jewish brethren and so what happens here is the, the two worst forms of society according to first century views anyways They are coming to Jesus to hear about God. And Luke tells us the Pharisees, the religious elite at this point in history, they have a real problem with this. So much so that they make this very brief but important statement. They start to slander Jesus' name. They're muttering, Luke is pretty clear to tell us they're muttering, meaning like they're gossiping or slandering, that Jesus welcomes and eats with these sinners, these types of people. There's a deep irony in this. The very people who were supposed to help people find their way back to God, the teachers of the law, the the stewards of the kingdom in the first century world, these folks who were sort of given the keys to help folks understand God, grow in God, they are actually the very people that don't believe anybody that is far from God. Coming back to God is a good thing. There's a deep irony in that. They actually take it a step further and they see it as a very bad thing. In this text, we learn that they even accuse Jesus of compromising God's holiness, essentially compromising purity laws, because he's engaging with these type of people. The very common accusation still muttered today by people who don't understand grace. That's the point of that last parable. Some of us think we don't need it, but the truth is we all do. And when we level that playing field, we can sort of get into the head of what Jesus means, the heart of what Jesus means in these teachings. There are still people today, whether in whole, who have forgotten the powerful truth Jesus is trying to teach us here about God's compassion and grace, or at times in our lives, maybe we deeply believe the gospel, but we, whether it's our own works or we seek validation in other areas of life, we deeply believe to one degree that God's grace is enough to satisfy every desire and thought I have in this time that we have on earth and in eternity. We might believe that one day, but then some days forget that reality in our heart. In other words, we we drift between what I talked about last week, hearing something and actually knowing something. And So no matter where we find ourselves, hardened against the grace of God, struggling with it, maybe we're a people who who right now are really thriving in the grace of God. Wherever you're coming from, there is a truth applicable from Jesus' words today to your life and your heart. In response to this attitude, this, this very hard, resistant attitude the Pharisees have in the first century world, Jesus confronts them, and he very pointedly, through story corrects their misconceptions about God's compassion for people he's going to help them understand how God actually sees the world and to do so he tells these three stories the story of the lost sheep the story of the lost coin and the story of the lost son three parables in different ways all communicating communicating the same idea the point of each story is that something that really mattered to somebody was very lost and when it was lost and the item that, when that item that was lost was found by the person who lost it, there is this amazing joy. There is a rejoicing in this person's heart that really shows just how much that item mattered to that person. And Jesus uses these lost and found stories to show us a pretty profound but often neglected truth for some Christians. And I say neglected, meaning if you have followed Jesus for some time, the truths of this passage are probably not new to you. The idea of God caring for people and us caring for people in that same way is a teaching that you will find from from Genesis to Revelation. By neglect, I mean sometimes because of the circumstances of life or maybe we don't have a burden for this, whatever it is, there are times or seasons in our lives when this truth can be so pointed, so clear. Loving God and loving neighbor. It's so explicitly clear in the Bible, but maybe the rhythm is not present in our life. I want us to be able to be honest about that. Because what we understand about this how we understand our lives before God and the lives of other people who are far from God, how we understand these things, it signifies or communicates a very important truth, one that really, our, we might say that our response to a teaching like this, Jesus' words, shows us how deeply we believe the truth that Jesus is communicating. What is the truth being mentioned here? Well, that all people in this world, when they are far from God and do not know Jesus, they are lost until they return to God through Jesus. There is a a caregiving owner in each story that really grieves when an item is lost and then really works hard to bring that item back to them. And so unlike the religious elite whom Jesus is correcting here, God looks at the people who are far from him. And I always say this when I say this, because at some point we were all far from him. Even if you're in Jesus right now, at some point we were relegated to the realm of the tax collector and the sinner. And if you understand good theology about redemption, we are simply redeemed sinners now. To know Jesus doesn't mean we stop sinning. It just means that the grace and the blood of Jesus has dealt with sin once and for all. It's dealt with the power of sin. But the presence of sin still lingers in our lives and seeks to destroy us every day of our lives. And so what we desire here is to understand grace more deeply in a way that we can actually pursue and thrive, uh, thrive in our relationship with Christ. And understanding that truth in our own lives is deeply connected to seeing the compassion, understanding the compassion God has for us and for other people. Because God truly wants people who are far from him to be found and restored to him. And when they are, when we are, when we were restored to him, the scripture teaches us, Luke 15, 10, we'll look at it here again in a moment, that heaven rejoices, that it deeply pleases the throne of God. When people who are far from him repent, find Jesus, and live in his goodness and grace for the rest of their days on this life and the next. This is a lost and found truth. And it's an important one to the life of our church to the future mission of restoration. Luke 15 teaches us that God has always pursued and been compassionate towards people who are far from Him. The very story of the Bible is mankind transgressing God, and God pursuing them despite the fact that we have hurt and grieved His heart. And it also is the story of God in His infinite grace and wisdom setting us apart, people just like you and me, to be the hands and the feet of His grace and compassion in our natural spheres of influence. We are truly instruments in his hands. He has decided to use us to be the the manifestation of his goodness and grace in the world. It is Christ in us, serving in our world, laboring for our nations and our neighbors, proclaiming the good news and the truth of Jesus Christ, that the light has come. This is what it means to be a people who who recognize what it, was, what it meant to be lost at one point in our lives, but also to be found. That foundness should really com- compel us to want to serve people and help them see the same grace that we so value. And so in Luke 15, Jesus drives home this point that God desires the people who are lost to be found and brought home to him. And when we say people who are far from God, please hear me. I don't say this in any arrogant or judgmental way, but this might be, this could be maybe people you don't get along with, people you don't agree with, People you don't believe in the same way with, we will never embrace the rhythm of mission that Jesus talks about here. If we are not at the table with people who are far from God, and Jesus's uh, story, the tax collector and the sinner. But each one of these stories teaches us that we are meant to show compassion like this. We're meant to experience it and show it to people in our community and culture. And what ties these stories together is not that something was just missing. That's part of the story. Rather, the things that were missing deeply mattered. This is a polemic on life, on how God sees his creation, fallen as it may be. What these stories teach us is that the lost deeply matter to God. We matter to God. And that's why the owners of these items in the stories go to great lengths to get them back. There's three examples that Jesus gives us and we literally could sort of teach a whole message on each one of the syndromes that each one of these lost items suffers from, but for time's sake today, I'll just mention them briefly. In the case of the sheep who was lost, it's because of sort of personal ignorance. The sheep sort of wanders astray and loses itself. Here though, the shepherd goes out in the field to look for that sheep. In other words, that single sheep straight away, other places Jesus talks about this. The shepherd's compassion and care for the sheep causes him to go find the sheep. In the case of the silver coin, it's sort of lost due to carelessness. It's, it's misplaced. This woman then tears her house apart, searching for that coin until she finds it. It's sort of a, a benevolent mistake, but there's a drive in this woman's heart to find that which is lost. And the third story of the lost son, the one that is most relevant to us because it's a story about people, it's a little different than the first two. And it's where Jesus begins to make his point. You see, the son is lost because of his own stubbornness. This is the only story of the three in the parables where this person is away or far from his father because he chooses to live in outright rebellion from his father. He wasn't carelessly wandering. He wasn't sort of, you know, in a mistake type of way misplacing something. This person chooses rebellion. They, they look at the love of their father and decide that there's something better than it. And it actually takes the compassion and the love of the Father to bring this person back to their senses. In other words, they had to be like woken out of it. And it is God's pursuit of this person, this son that actually, in the story anyways, the love of the Father is what actually breaks this this streak of stubbornness. The eyes of this person's heart were eventually opened in large part due to the committed compassion, the great compassion the Father has for this son. Luke 15, 20, five things happen. We read that the father first watches for him, anxiously awaits his arrival, waits for the day he comes home. The father then has compassion on him. The father runs to him when he sees him. The father embraces him when he sees him and gives him an incredible kiss when he finds him. Now, maybe in your culture, uh, if it's not a biblical culture or maybe your ethnic background, I don't know if you kiss people a lot, but in my family, we kiss a lot of people. And you're like whoa what are you talking about let me explain so I come from an Italian-American family and to this day my father's a grown man we still kiss each other it is a form of embrace Uh, I have some friends in here that are from the Midwest and when they hear this they're cringing right now Uh, but in New York you kiss that's the way it works I still kiss my son to this day and I will do it to the day that he dies whether he likes it or not wherever he is he needs to know that my girls are in the same way this idea of the kisses is sort of like when when there's no more control There's such an immeasurable amount of love and passion that this person has come back to the father that he just plants a big one on him and is so thankful that he's home. It is the compassion, the committed compassion of the father that wins the son over. And the eyes of his heart are eventually opened in large part due to the father showing in this type of compassion. It's beautiful. And so in each story we see these lost items matter so much to their caregivers that they went to great lengths to find them. And although Jesus gives us this truth in the form of an analogy, it is meant to reveal a very serious spiritual reality about humanity's relationship with God. Simply put, there are lots of people, and we, maybe we are these people right now, or we were these people. This isn't a passage about judging that reality. It's a passage about leading us out of it. There are lots of people in our world who are lost objects, who for various reasons have strayed from the Father who loves them. Or maybe we follow Jesus, but... We're sort of like the sheep wandering in pastures that are no longer his. The moral of this story is those people, whomever the category they fall into, they are not an afterthought to God. They have never been an afterthought to God. They are a primary thought to God, a major priority for God, because he deeply loves them and wants them to come home in Jesus. That's what he wants. And Christ's words show us, because God is compassionately concerned about reaching people, those who are far from him, he is also compelled to relentlessly pursue them. Because he desires that which is lost to be found. And he deeply rejoices with all of heaven. Anytime somebody who wanders, when they find Jesus and come home, that's a happy moment in the heavens. That compassion burden is why we started this church. And seeing it grow in our hearts is the key to our future. This isn't a new truth that I present to you this week and the next. It's really a truth that I want us to wrestle with in deep and meaningful ways this year to ask if it's, a, it's an evident truth in our lives if the grace that we so cherish from Jesus is one that we actually desire to share in other people, whether we're discipling other men in Jesus in the same way, being discipled, or helping men and women who are far from God learn this, understand this, wrestling with their concerns and their issues and their challenges. This compassion burden is why we started this church. It's an important rhythm in the life of a Christian, but it is also the real challenge, where the real challenge lies anyways in a passage like this for us. It is a clear command that is often very difficult to respond to. Because this whole teaching was given, I want you to think about this, this was given to a group of religious people. There is no, n- there's no slighted sort of comment here. I'm not trying to imply anything here. This is the best church I have ever led in my life. And we don't struggle with the, the area of moralism here. So please don't hear me saying that here. But I want you to know that here what we have is, you have a group of people who are charged with teaching the law. They are the people who are, are put on earth at this point to help people understand this truth they know it better than anybody yet they have never been moved to the place in their hearts where they have lived this out and this is what we talked about last week there is a big difference between hearing something and knowing something they know this law it's not new to them but it has not penetrated their hearts to the place where they actually live in light of it in fact it's the antithesis what's happening here They are condemning those, including the Son of God who is living like this. The religious elite that Jesus addresses in this passage, they show us something very important about about Christianity and what it means to be a Christian or a church. Our theological understanding of God, our understanding of his compassion, of his goodness, of his greatness, of his kindness, fill in all the S's, all of the things that we believe about God, our understanding of God, although incredibly important, that's not enough to just understand something about God. At some point, what we claim to know about God, in particular here is compassion towards us, it has to burden us to the place that we desire to pursue other people with the same type of compassion. Albeit in broken human ways, the idea is that that is a fire that also rages in our hearts. Our knowledge, our understanding of God, in whatever area it is that he is working on our lives in, at some point, must begin reshaping our life in that area. And this is especially important for us to understand when it comes to the, the, the way that we think about our lives, the way that we think about how we use our time, our finances, our efforts in our church, and when we leave this place. Because the Bible is pretty clear. One of the main ways, not the only way, but one of the main ways God has chosen to pursue those who are far from him is through you and me. He has put his grace in us. He has called us back into love with him. So that we can now be vessels. We can be a people who proclaim the same goodness and grace that we have experienced on our own. And this is where I want to say some things about the modern church of which we are a part of that. Because sometimes I think the modern church, and I want us to be mindful of this, that we never stray into this. We can sort of take this this explicit command God gives us to think about compassion... We can remove ourselves from this paradigm and substitute things in its place. Let me explain what I mean by that, especially when it comes to the, the life of the church. When it comes to how people will find God, it is likely not going to be through more church programs. And I want to say that these are valuable. We have a few of them here at our church, but I don't think that Luke 15 is trying to communicate through more programs, the, the, the people of our world will feel compassion. It's not by expecting that, All of the people in our lives, the folks eating at restaurants in our world right now, maybe those of you, some some of you in this room right now, it's not going to be by expecting that all those people are just going to get up one day and after they see whatever's playing in this theater, come to church. It's very likely not going to be that, that they're going to find faith, stumble into Jesus on their own. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm saying the emphasis of this passage is not that. Although we do want to continue to be a people that invite folks into our lives, into the life of our church, and to our community groups, we certainly want to let the world see our family here. But we have to know that without that bridge of invitation, it is very likely they will never never sort of attend these circles, whatever they are. And it's also important to know that it is not enough to just talk about a truth like this today. This is sort of what's going on in the world of the Pharisee. It's important that we go home and pray about this truth, but we have to know that these types of truths are meant to be wrestled with in a way to where we think about what they mean in our life. And so although we deeply value wrestling with these truths, all of them, I'm not kidding when I say this is a place where skeptics are welcome. It has been the greatest privilege of my life to sit down with people and to, to deal with their questions and challenges because I have my own. This is what I love about our church. But I just want us to know that if we, if we are just praying about these things but not actually asking God how to act about these things, how to get engaged in these things, then it might signify that there's a bit of a disconnect. If we can leave a room like this and celebrate the compassion of God, but not experience it and share it, there is a disconnect. If we just see this truth like that, something we know but don't necessarily act upon, or even feel the conviction of the Spirit to act upon, then we will likely suffer the same confused fate the Pharisees did in Luke 15. To, a very, to various degrees, they heard this stuff, but they, it never translated to the point of actually showing compassion. And that's what this passage teaches us, is that God has deep compassion And we know this. We know that God is compassionate about people because of Luke 15, verse 10. It'll be the verse behind us as we take communion. Luke 15, 10 tells us, heaven literally rejoices when one person repents of their sin and comes back to God. The words of Jesus, it'll be behind me. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's really an amazing thing to think about that when you came to Jesus, your life was so valuable and precious to God that heaven had like a little micro party for you and that there are people in your life whom the heavens await to throw a party for. That is pretty awesome to think about that, that the host of the heavens view our lives in a way we matter so deeply to God and what is going on in heaven, our eternity, that that world rejoices when we enter it. And so really believing this truth like we spoke about last week believing it to the place where we ask God to bring about a a reality in our life, it comes to fruition in our life. It's a beautiful truth, not just for eternity, but for right now. What this passage does is it gives our hearts, no matter how we feel we are viewed in the world we live in, it gives us a validation that cannot be robbed, taken from us, or assailed by anything outside of us. When we understand the worth that we have before God, especially because he sends his son to die on the cross for us, What this means is we don't need to seek personal validation or worth from anything else in this world. That doesn't mean that we don't need it. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't want it. But it means our ultimate validation cannot be, no pun intended, validated or invalidated by what God has said about us. Nothing can take that away from us. The shifting sands of this world that we often put our, you know, we throw our lot in that and hope it works out. The things that we believe satisfy our soul today, but then betray us tomorrow, these are not the places that we are to find our ultimate worth in. Luke 15 is where we are to find our ultimate worth in. That's, that's the idea. Because when you're found in Jesus, your life is now built on the promises of Christ's rock. And on the top of that rock is the greatest evidence of the love God, God has for us in Jesus. The greatest evidence of how far God was going to go to bring us home. On the top of that rock is the cross of Christ, and Jesus hangs on it for us. And so the point that, that is being made here by Jesus and reiterated by Luke is that when we hear this, When we really know that, when you really believe Jesus has died for you and wants to know you and wants to help you become more like him and is with you every day of your life, no matter what you're going through, if that does not cause us to be burdened for God and others, when we experience that, it might signify that it's time for us to get a checkup in that gospel garage. It might be time for us to think about what is the disconnect there that we do not sort of ooze that same reality out of our hearts, live it with our hands and contemplate it on a daily basis in our lives. No matter where you stand today with this compassion truth, I I want to leave you with two action steps. This is where we'll begin to sort of narrow our focus and end. Two action steps that will help you get on the path that Jesus calls us to in Luke 15. It will also help you stay on the path if you're already walking on it. And a path like this, if we're gonna be honest, is one that we probably get on and get off at times. I wish I could say that every single person I know, including myself, compassionately lives for other people every day of their life. That's likely not going to be the reality. But the reality should be that we strive for this and that we ask God for grace when we fail this and that we ask God for strength to live this. And so there are two sort of ideas that I want to reinforce in this message next week and certainly throughout the time we spend with each other in rooms like this and and community groups, even the chili cook-off, as much as I disdain losing every year, the reality of it is that it, it is part of what we're trying to do here as a body. It's one of the ways that we, we show compassion and build community. And so I want to ask you to pray about two things, two action steps. The first is this. Pray with me in asking God if you live your life in a way that the people you come in contact with experience God's compassion. Are you a person whom the compassion of God is known in your heart and in your life? Do people see and sense that? And what I mean by this is in your life, in your schools, in your workplace, your family, your hobbies, your social media sites, wherever you are and whomever you come in contact with, no matter how you're being treated, do the people that leave the interaction they have with you walk away feeling like there is a a streak of compassion in you? Do they walk away saying things like, this wasn't encouraging, even if it's a challenging time, it was encouraging, and even if they disagree with everything, especially if you're having conversations about life and faith, Do they walk away feeling cared for, knowing that they matter? The reason this this is so important is because one of the main attributes that makes our church our church, restoration, restoration, is the high value we place on meaningful community. It's always been that way. We have always been advocates for the patient, kind, gentle, long-suffering type of friendship that Jesus speaks about, not the become a Facebook friend and follow them the first time they offend you type of friendship, which is how the majority of our world is beginning to function today. It's what we call sort of convenient or disposable relationship. We've tried to create a place where people can find a deep sense of relational belonging to each other in Jesus, and that's why I wanna ask you all, there are lots of things over these next weeks I'm gonna ask you to pray about, but the big one this year is really asking if you are engaged in compassion and community like we're talking about today. Are you engaged in a meaningful relationship like that with somebody in here? Are you building community with other men and women in our body? Are you being poured into, and are you pouring into others? Community. And are you extending that type of relationship with the people in your life who are not here in anything that we're doing, like Jesus does in Luke 15, compassion? Are you showing that love and caring for people who are far from God or who have been hurt in the name of God, wherever they're coming from? Is community and compassion sort of driving your, your faith in your life? And connected to that prayer is an action step. I'd like to ask you to take right now. So if you have an interest in learning how to disciple others, being discipled, how to connect people who are far from God to God, how to engage the world you live in, then take that connection card in your seat and write on your cup holder, uh, not on your cup holder, we'll have to pay for that if you do that, write on the, the document in your cup holder, just write the word interested. Interested, that's it, we'll follow up with you. We'll let you know how you can connect, get connected to some community groups and get engaged in a play, place where you can be equipped to serve. Pray about that. And if you need time to pray about that, that's why we're going to talk about this again next week. You have a whole week to do so. Pray with me, secondly, in asking God if you are faithfully supporting God's mission of compassionate restoration with your life and your resources. So, by making the space to be compassionate and build community, what we're doing is we're saying we're going to start making space in our lives to be concerned with the things of God. The second value is the same. And everything I'm about to say now includes the church of restoration. And it includes things far beyond the walls of this church. And so in the scripture, the two areas of life, and we talk about idols, we talk about several of them here, but the two areas of life that we are regularly called to set aside a portion of our life with, in, in, for God's mission, of compassion for building community, it's in the way that we use our time and our money. That essentially comprises the bulk of who we are as people in the modern Western world what we do with our time and what we do with our money. These are incredibly precious commodities. You cannot be compassionate towards somebody else if you don't have the time to do that. You cannot meet a need in somebody's life if you're not willing to sacrifice hard-earned dollars, time, in order to be able to bless somebody else. This is an important thing for us to recognize, and here's why. If we really believe that a disciple is called to give their whole life to Christ, a decision that we talk about is one that we must make when the voice of Jesus calls, we have to make a decision on whether or not we're going to, to follow him. In fact, Jesus is very clear in multiple places that we ought to count that cost before we actually cannonball into the pool of Christianity, not fully understanding some of the expectations he has of us and the ones he's going to reshape our life in for the rest of our lives. This is a decision that we make. And so what this means is when we say you are Lord Jesus, when we recognize what he's done on the cross for us, when we recognize his compassion and his goodness, to call Jesus Lord means we are making a commitment as embryonic as it is in the early days of our faith to give him our whole life. And this includes our time, it includes our God-given talents and abilities, the giftings and abilities that he has given us, and it includes our financial resources. And I always like to say whenever we talk about this that time, our personal time and financial resources are two of the most sacred commodities in the life of the Westerner, the American. I say regularly they're off-limit topics for most people. In the scripture, I want you to think about this, they are identified as being two of the highest possibilities for idol worship. Meaning these are blessings God gives us, gifts that God gives us, which perhaps more easy than any other idol in the Bible, they can, become, they can become the kings of our life. And what eventually happens here is a great many people, they start to serve the God of time and the God of money. And if you serve the God of money too long, what happens is you'll serve the God of debt. That's where that ends up. These tools which God has given us, our life for him and our resources, whatever they are, as immense or meager as they are, we are given these things so that they can be tools that serve God in us. That's what they're there for. We are meant to be in Jesus, the master of them. But it's a very fine line here where these things become our master. And when that happens, there's a problem. Those are cruel masters. You know, Time is the one thing we all long for on our deathbed, and money is the one thing that can make life very easy or very difficult. They are meant to be shepherded by the grace and the wisdom of Jesus. And so in light of this, we shouldn't be surprised that God regularly talks about our whole life. We call this whole life stewardship. He calls us to think about setting aside portions of what matters most to us for his causes. In the same way, and here's the distinction here, that God gave up what mattered most to him in full for us. God didn't give us a portion of Jesus. He put him on the cross in full. And where there is an expectation of us, it's very clear that God first first and foremost meets that expectation in full. And so for the Christian, the way that we see our time, the way that we see our talents, the way that we understand our treasure, it truly is a direct reflection of how deeply we understand the gospel of grace. We receive it in full and then distribute it in portions <laughs> or not at all. They are truly the concrete way that we engage in God's mission of compassion. As a church here, and how you make space for God's mission of compassion when you leave this place. It's like I said earlier, there are lots of people in your world that will never walk into this room, no matter how great of a people we are and how kind we are. Your compassion, your desire to show love and care for those folks out there is really how we will see people like that find God. We have to make space for those things in our lives. If we don't, the mission suffers. I don't know how else to say it. And so it's my hope that in all areas of are our pursuit of Jesus. That we are always growing in our desire to consistently give our lives back to the God who first gave his all for us and for most people when it comes to thinking about time or talents or treasures this is the the idea what we like to say sacrificial generosity for most people sacrificial generosity is not the place we begin life it's rare that a person starts there it often takes time it takes teaching scriptural truth the conviction of the spirit Accountability with each other, it takes a, a deep recognition of some point that God really does call us to live sometimes in counterintuitive ways to what the world will teach us, that we are not only to live for ourselves but also to, sit, to, to value others equally, and as Philippians teaches us, there are sometimes times when we are to value others more than, the, than we value ourselves. We're to place more worth on them than we are our own lives at times. That's like straight up in the Bible. And so this morning, when it comes to this action step of whole life generosity, I want to respectfully ask you to ask God how seriously you take the role of being a disciple and making disciples. Ask God to show you if you truly live as a beacon of compassion to this world, if you are using some of your time, talents and treasure to advance the name of Jesus. You know, why do you exist? Is it, you know, for which kingdom I guess is what I'm trying to ask. Which kingdom do do you devote most of your time to building? Is the kingdom of God even a a thought in your mind and on your heart? And so if you realize today that you're not giving yourself to God like this in full, then you should know that that's pretty much where we all are. But I want you to know that this is something to pray about. This is something to really recognize that there is always a next step. If you realize there's a next step for you when it comes to being more generous with your life, then take it. Ask God what that is and take it. If you're inconsistent in these areas, ask God to help you to be more consistent. If you have questions about how to live generously, how to use your talents for God, then let us know that on that connection card. The one thing I want to say here, and then I have like literally five sentences then we're going to wrap up. When it comes to, to sacrificial generosity, when it comes to a compassion for the world, we are all in different stages when it comes to that part of our journey. That is the sign of a healthy church. I can just about guarantee we have people that are super committed in these areas. And for some people, this is the first time this has even brought to their mind. We're all in different stages when it comes to this part of the journey. But we are also all in this together. So don't go this alone. Learn from God, from other people. Invest in somebody. Learn how to be more faithful to God in this area. We do that together. It's an important thing to know. And so as we move to this communion table, which is the greatest example of God's compassion and sacrificial generosity towards us. It covers all the bases we've discussed this morning. It is God's presence for us when we are without it. It is God's absolute grace for us when we didn't deserve it. And it is his sustained presence for us every day of our life. It is the absolute reality of compassion and sacrificial generosity. That is what we are about to talk about. In light of all this, let's give thanks for the goodness that God has shown us in Jesus. Let's thank him for another year. Let's all believe that with all of our heart and soul in our own lives and in the life of our church, there are greater things yet to come. That God truly does want to continue to do good things through us as a church family in rooms like this and in the rooms that are not like this in our world. And let's pray that we would continue to be a place where God's compassion and his Christ-honoring community reign supreme. I pray those are the two crowns we are most known for. And the way we will be most known for those crowns is in the way that we engage those truths. Let his compassion and community reign supreme. Amen. Pray with me.